when COVID hit and we were all confined to our homes, there was an explosion of gaming. People discovered that they could hang out with their friends, not just on Zoom, but also while playing network games like World of Warcraft or even Civilization. There was an explosion in the number of people playing games, not just amongst uh, adolescent boys, but across all age groups. And people found out something new about gaming. In the words of the Forbes business magazine, no less, gaming had the potential to unlock bonds of community, educate and inspire. And in the context of the pandemic, this was a lifeline of sociability and play for so many people, especially young people. Was this gaming's finest moment? Was this the moment that gaming finally entered the annals of history? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. I am Jeff Rich. A writer, historian, poet, podcaster and very minor government official And this is the Burning Archive podcast The podcast about all things history and culture Where the past is not dead The past is not even past And today I am beginning the series of shows That are developing out in response to questions put to me Back in December last year by Isaac Rich back in episode 32 this archive is for the players and in that episode Isaac asked me six questions about things that about history I guess that are partly organized thematically against the theme of gaming and what I've chosen I'm going to do a response to each of those questions and in this episode I'm going to actually tackle that broad theme of uh, you know what do you make how to make sense of gaming in the context of history and culture uh, but it's been a little while it's been since uh, mid-December and you know I've had a holiday and uh, the pandemic has um, ended and uh, World War Three has broken out uh, American senators are threatening to assassinate Vladimir Putin and the world is a funny place and uh, you might have noticed I've sort of started a little extra se- series of the Burning Archive podcast a uh, sort of sub-series the uh, Geopolitics Upside Down podcast so I'll be d- producing those as well as these other other shows on the broad themes but because it's been a while I thought what I thought I'd do is start today's episode with a little bit of a recap of how Isaac Rich presented the themes and the questions about history and gaming to me back in December who knows what secrets hide in the dark I do. And how would you describe your interest in history? Uh, I would describe it as a bit on and off, maybe, maybe a bit informal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've never formally studied history, really. I didn't do history sort of, I, I guess, early high school. I did it in school. I didn't do it in the sort of later years of school. And history is something that like has come into my uni degree in different ways a lot, but it's never been the sort of core focus of my degree. So yeah, it's something that has always been a kind of background interest um, and something that I think a lot of things that I'm interested in are linked to history, things like geography and travel and pop culture and that sort of thing. Fantastic. And now uh, I should tell the listeners, so Isaac's going to give me six questions for me to think about in a second. I should tell listeners that I don't know what these questions are. I don't even, I know there's a theme. I don't even know what the theme is. So we'll just see, this will be part of the theatre of the show. So (laughs) uh, you can judge if if there's any real blank out spots, I'll probably edit them out. But Mm -hmm. let's here first i said what is the theme of these six questions you're going to ask me so the theme something which i think you will be uh very interested in slash something that you already know a bit about the context of i've themed these questions around gaming 
Uh, so <laughs> this is something, uh, and you'll see they're, they're not quite talking about gaming itself, um, but they're all questions which are in some way linked to different games that I played a lot of growing up, which yep. uh, for me was a big part of something that kind of spurred on my interest in history was um, seeing how history was reflected in fantasy and um, pop culture and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so there's a few a few games that you will definitely... They're all things that you would have heard of or even played yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then sort of elements or themes within those games yeah. that are linked to questions about real world history. Well, that's really interesting too, because games, I guess, are now such a big part of the culture. And I guess they're talked about a bit, but maybe not super seriously or whatever, or or, or the intellectual or cultural content of mm. the games is not necessarily talked about. A whole lot, but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's a huge part of the culture. You, you didn't necessarily watch all that much television as no. a kid, but you you know played games and things like that. So the the the, the culture that is was in games is as significant and formative as as um, you know what was on the TV screens, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And even if it's you know, even if it varies quite a bit in terms of like the historical accuracy or, or that sort of thing, these are all yeah. things that are, I guess kind of inspired and and kind of built into games. Yeah. Um, part of this theme came out of listening to the episode on Beowulf. Oh, yes. Um, and hearing sort of, you know, you talk about um, how a lot of the kind of fantasy creatures and and that sort of thing and that idea of, of like a fantasy world or a or a yeah mythical questing kind of world came out of that so in this episode i'm going to talk about five broad things first of all i'm going to talk about how games are windows to history and culture really building on i guess isaac's insight in that little clip there that i played that uh, isaac you know was introduced to many cultural themes through games rather than television or books or secondly i'm gonna talk about how games have their own history uh, and just give a really quick little uh, history of computer games and maybe bring out how that history shows their growing place in the culture. That's sort of like a different history to the history of sport, for example. Then I'm going to comment on how games are indeed a form of art and culture. Arguably, you could even say a game like World of Warcraft is what used to be uh, referred to around like Wagner's operas in the 19th century as a total artwork. It combines all the different forms of music and drama and literature and I guess cinema and all this sort of thing. I'll talk about uh, how how games actually add something to the culture. And then I'm going to talk about how broaden it out, if you like, to games are a form of play. And play is not just a diversion from life. Play is central to, to the human experience. And there I'm going to talk a little bit about a historian, Johannes Husinger, who wrote a book called Homo Ludens, which is all about how a characteristic of humans is that they play. One shouldn't look down on games as just play one should realize that in a way games are just another aspect of the way in which we humans play and then finally i'm going to talk about how perhaps one of the powerful things about games and gaming is that it's very much for the players it's a very bottom-up form of culture less driven by gatekeepers in a way than uh, other cultures and in a way this same aspect of gaming seems to be now pervading broader cultural forms with uh, lower barriers of entry and much more 
participation from random people like me doing podcasts. Okay, so that's the outline of the show. Five broad themes. Games as a windows to history and culture. Games having their history. Games as a form of art and culture. Play being central to human experience. And games being for the players. Indeed, culture being for the players, the participants. Okay, let's get into each of those topics now. You have crossed into the world of the dead in search of answers. You wish to save your ally and have risked life and limb to be here. Allow me to help. I would first talk about games as a windows to history and culture. I think I've got sort of seven points really about how games are such windows. First of all, gaming, I think, is actually a means of some level of historical understanding. It's obviously not like a direct primary source on history. But if you play a game like Civilization or uh, the various um, kind of historical strategy games like Crusader Kings or uh, Europa Universalis or, you know, Age of Empires... You are given a couple of things. First of all, you're given a, like a treasure trove of actual historical facts and information that can prompt curiosity. So who, who is this famous great leader who appears in, you know, civilization? Who, what, what are these strange territories marked on the maps of Europa Universalis? But more than that, you also are immersed in the process of the dynamics of historical change you see how clearly in an artificial way but nonetheless one that with a little bit of imagination and a little bit of thought you can easily apply to other situations you see how building up the economy can work here and fighting too many wars can cause problems there you can see how for example, in civilization, if if you build a a vast global empire with military bases on all continents, you end up uh, exhausting your economic resources and um, alienating the world. So, you know, maybe a few people in America, a few more people in America, should play civilization. But you sort of get that sense of the direct experience of all the complex interactions between different factors that are so much part of history. Secondly, games can provide an absolute storehouse, I guess, of knowledge about history. Uh, Having played games like Europa Universalis and Crusader Kings a little bit, uh, even games like Civilization as well, I'm amazed at the amount of uh, information about people and characters and all that sort of stuff, um, key figures in history, key advisors, boundaries of different states at different times that are preserved there. So it it is a way to acquire that knowledge. And I believe some of these games have, in fact, been used by some uh, educators as a way of teaching teaching history to people. Even in games like, say, World of Warcraft, always a slightly, almost partly uh, mock pop culture sort of tone to it, but there's uh, a huge range of literary references in uh, World of Warcraft as well that if you really want to, you can pursue so there's this this knowledge of history and culture that's stored within the games and sort of passes it on, I guess, to to new people and and uh, new people, uh, new people, new generations, with a little bit of curiosity and empathy and imagination. Thirdly, games provide stories, and stories are the sort of uh, transmitters of, I guess, of history and culture. A game like Civilization, I guess, has a sort of embedded story about how civilizations develop. 
there's a sort of a technology tree and all this sort of thing, which is just yet another interpretation, uh, may not be entirely accurate, historically accurate, uh, but it, it is a, a, a platform for greater understanding. A game like World of Warcraft is in its modified form a huge compendium it's like an encyclopedia of the mythologies of the world yeah there's, there's many many uh, stories of the world that are retold through the games fourthly games are so immersive uh, especially when you combine the elements of story and text and image and music and uh, narrative uh, I guess I said narrative before you get you you are thrown into the culture and you learn how to appreciate it and I think it can also by doing that prompt empathy and empathy I think is so fundamental to really understanding history really appreciating multiple cultures multiple different aspects of cultures and you know the sort of multi-polar cultures of the world and then what is especially important about games is they're not just stories that you read they're stories that you participate in and i think this is actually one of the aspects of gaming that actually does make it a strong window onto history and culture because it's 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 ultimately it's the thing of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes by pretending to be the leader of a civilization by pretending to be a uh, sort of a ninja fighter in renaissance italy as in assassin's creed you actually uh, are not just absorbing intellectual content you're actually emotionally engaged in situations um, always aware that you're not actually there but nonetheless getting uh, a window onto uh, the, those worlds of history and culture uh, now they're imperfect windows sure but every every window onto history and culture is imperfect so i just think we should appreciate it for what they offer shamanism has brought you here its scent permeates the air <laughs> i was once a shaman Okay, so second uh, little part is looking at how games have their own history. So if you type in history of gaming into Google Scholar, like uh, kind of I just did, you will find some interesting things. So one of them is you'll get a result about wargaming as in putting little soldiers and mini battalions on a artificial or, or, or a constructed tabletop terrain and uh, seeing how things work out. Wargaming is also played out in a more complex way in literally like simulations, I guess, to see whether America could actually win a war against China for Taiwan, uh, I believe in all recent war games that the american military have undertaken they lose that war uh, but then you also find gaming in the sense of like casinos and uh, slot machines that sort of uh, or, or well, the pokies that sort of thing and of course both those things the sort of tabletop war games have been incorporated into all those sort of military sort of games like total war and all that sort of thing and also the whole random number generator and you know getting your fat loots is totally totally integrated into gaming so it's an interesting example of how there are 
the non-computer game version or antecedents to gaming which have sort of streamed into it and then taken a particular form on a computer but it's found its own power by being uh, able to be cheaply and powerfully done similarly you know a lot of computer games are sport simulation games and a lot of computer games use the famous dungeons and dragons rules of uh, real life role play games so computer games are not this sort of world this sort of separate domain computer games are a kind of a, a manifestation of multiple traditions of games and play that have followed a particular path through technology and uh, economics and social patterns. And I'm not sure if there is a really good, you know, kind of scholarly history of computer games. I haven't really found one yet. Uh, I'm sure there are. And I have seen some academic works that explore particular facets, like some, you know, there was a real academic fascination in World of Warcraft as to, you know, what what is the nature of these massive multiplayer role-play games back in, you know, when World of Warcraft became enormous. But there's a great article I found on the blog of the uh, National Museum of Switzerland, which provides a, a sort of like a potted history of the history of video games. So I'm just going to use that to provide a little bit of a narrative history of video games. So, and it sort of organises it by decades. Uh, And uh, so he describes 1950 to 1970, so I guess that's 20 years, as tinkering. And as he says there, video games is closely linked to the evolution of the computer. Back in those days, computers were huge, um, but it was in 1958 that someone... Uh, first programmed a computer specifically for entertainment and developed a game called Tennis for Two, which I think was later effectively like Pong and those sort of games where you sort of um, basically a, a piece of light is bouncing from one end of a screen to another. Then in the 1970s, there was the birth of the video game machines. Students tinkering with smaller computer systems. And in 1972, the company Atari uh, began operating. uh, And it would dominate the video game. It was the initial, uh, I guess, platform like Xbox or PlayStation or whatever that uh, on which video games became common. And it was on this uh, platform that that game Pong uh, became a global success. Then you had games like Space Invaders. Um, and like back when I was a kid, I never really did this, I've got to say. But, you know, there were some many of my fellow young people back when I was a teenager would go to like a computer arcade type places or arcade game game arcade places and would play space invaders or pac-man that sort of thing uh, the game space invaders really began in 1978 and again they're pretty primitive but it's really in the 1980s that we see the input he this person whose name is let's give them a Credit Alexander Rechsteiner and Alexander, if you're listening to the show, thanks very much for your wonderful uh, article. I understand you work at the PR department of the Swiss National Museum and have an MA in Modern English Literature and Political Science. Clearly played too many computer games. Um, In the 1980s, we see the infancy of video games. Uh, with things like Pac-Man, Ultima, Mario Brothers in 1983. And then I think what is the world's uh, biggest selling computer game ever, Tetris, which came out in 1984, and SimCity in 1989. So uh, so there's, there's both 
computer games like PC type games here, as well as the consoles like Atari and all that sort of thing. But it's also in the 80s that Nintendo gets going and with new platforms. But uh, I remember like SimCity from uh, 1989 and like in my very first couple of years in the public service in 1990 there was still uh, it was an era where there were computers on people's desks but they were not yet networked so they were sort of separate standalone computers and you know this would never happen in the public service today but people actually would install uh, or wouldn't be allowed to happen people installed uh, games like SimCity and another popular one was the golf game on their computers. And in, in some of the quieter moments that occasionally happen in the public service, people were would play their games. And that's that's how I think I was first introduced to computer games, actually, by seeing people play SimCity on their computers on the desks at work, including quite you know, senior and sensible and important people. But there's always a few quiet moments and sometimes you just have to play a simulation of a city while pretending to govern the state. A bit of a diversion there on uh, on uh, com- on computer games. And then in the 1990s, there's what this uh, author describes as a new dimension. So the industry has become more complex and the player base has become more complex and the graphics capacity of things start to become better rather than the sort of two-dimensional world of of pong uh, you start to be able to realize more realistic and three-dimensional effects both in consoles and on uh, pc games and then there are also more innovative ideas coming from Uh, game design studios and so it's in the 1990s that you get games like civilization it doesn't mention civilization here but so so i've just checked wikipedia and civilization first came out in 1991 and i'm pretty sure the first civilization game i might have played civ 1 i certainly played civilization 2 but I, i don't see the release date there uh, so as, as uh, the guy's saying here, this is this reflects, you know, more innovative ideas, including using history as an inspiration for the gameplay. So there's Civilization, there's Age of Empires, there's a game called Command and Conquer from 1995, where I seem to remember playing that as well, where you it's like a I don't know, Halo type sort of a first person shooter game where you sort of recreate battles or whatever from uh, World War II. And then there's Tomb Raider, and I'm also pretty sure there was sort of puzzle games like Myst and things in the 1990s because uh, I played them there. So the the culture of the actual culture and range of things that was in computer games expands enormously in the 1990s. And also, I guess, the sporting games are are becoming uh, broader and more significant here as well. Uh, this author doesn't really seem to focus much on the sporting games, but, you know, I do remember some of the early games being around golf but then then i'm not quite sure when the soccer real the soccer simulations began but all those simulations of soccer and um, i guess basketball etc became uh, really really enormously important to the culture of gaming then in the 2000s he says gaming goes online the internet the worldwide web really sort of began i guess in the mid 1990s but then really took off in the that i mean that was really the the late 1990s was the first big sort of dot-com explosion the first massive wild west part of Uh, and sort of utopian dimension of internet culture and that became a basis of uh, an explosion of online games there was a famous predecessor to world world of warcraft came out in 2004 and there was a famous predecessor to world of warcraft which i've just checked the name of and that was everquest and that came out in march 
1999. And some of the podcasters I used to listen to about World of Warcraft were really into EverQuest. It, you know, it was a, a similar sort of, I guess, structure to World of Warcraft, but much more uh, demanding and laborious, I guess. So 2000 C games go online, 2000 World of Warcraft begins. I think I started playing World of Warcraft in maybe late 2005, just before... Uh, maybe six months or so before the Burning Crusade expansion. And there's enormous technological development here and the development of open world games, sandbox games, things like The Sims and Grand Theft Auto, Super Mario Galaxy and Minecraft in 2010. Still haven't played Minecraft, I've got to say. Then in the 2010s, uh, this author really talks about how games go into this play anywhere anytime mode they're now a huge business world of warcraft in a way it became an iconic game because it just was so successful like i think at the height they had 12 million active players or something like that uh worldwide it's just a huge huge phenomenon and so much more money much more computing power and then um, much more use of multiple platforms, computers, consoles, tablets, and mobile phones. So, yeah, and that's the 2010s, as well as the evolution of the PlayStation and other things. Then at the end, he speculates that the 2020s will see a deeper move into the virtual world with coloured pixels, hyper-realistic 3D landscapes, and uh, other other developments. The whole virtual reality. Although virtual reality, I mean, they've been talking about that for years and it just doesn't seem to have quite taken off. Looking back at that history, it's fascinating. It's, 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 it's kind of curious in a way to reflect back on one's own personal intertwining with that, that history, how it's developed. Closely linked, I guess, to technological developments, I guess, with just the capacity to do different things, but also the importation, the use of, of, of different cultural strands, the you know inclusion of sport, the inclusion of war, the inclusion of uh, history, the inclusion of role play, uh, myth, legend, Tolkien, fantasy, Beowulf-type element that Isaac was talking about in the clip that I played earlier. And it's interesting, I guess, comparing it to, say, the history of sport, because, like, you know, very simply, sport really moves from being just pastimes to becoming a professionalised commercial activity with organised clubs and professional players in the mid to late 19th century and then I guess soon becomes uh, codified and all the rest of it with the Olympics and professional sporting organisations and elite competitions. Clearly also with widespread participation as well but in a way, the professional part of it becomes dominant, whereas gaming really seems to follow a kind of a different path, less driven by spectators, I guess, and more driven by, and, and hence less driven by elite players, and more driven by widespread participation and technological possibilities. And with that, because of the huge demographic base of people playing, the huge range of interests and aptitudes and curiosities and preferences of that huge demographic base, much less sort of structured and hierarchical and organised than perhaps uh, the evolution of professional sport. And while there's certainly some, you know, e-sport, professional esports and all that kind of stuff, it just, it does seem very much that the history of gaming seems to go in a slightly different direction to the history of sport. This man-child, Arthas took for himself a cursed blade known as Frostmourne. Through Frostmourne, Arthas killed his own father and raised this land along with every living creature in it. My own death 
came at the hands of Arthas, when he and his armies sacked my homeland, Quel'Thalas, and murdered my people. In his vast cruelty, Arthas severed my spirit from my body and raised me as a banshee to serve in his Scourge army. A similar fate befell all that would die to the Scourge war machine. Games are a form of culture. They really add something to the culture. They're an aesthetic experience. They're a cultural experience. Um, there are real meaningful experiences that people have in those games that then bring on and, and give focus and meaning to the rest of lives. It's not just distraction. It's not just an unreal, secluded, secluded experience. It is something that is a form of art. I guess. And, you know, provocatively, I've suggested that in a way, a game like World of Warcraft at its height was, if you like, a new total artwork because it combined all the art forms, but not just bringing all those art forms together. It actually brought uh, participant and producer together in a common experience. You didn't just sit down and watch Wagner's Ring Cycle you actually, you were one of the Valkyries. Um, you opened the gates of Ankaraj. Um, you, which is a World of Warcraft sort of event, an, an actual sort of cultural event that happens within the game, but then is, if you like, a, a real experience, a real event, not just a spectator activity. So I think that's quite a fascinating aspect of games and why, you know, they're worth taking seriously. Power. My people are addicted to it. A dependence made manifest after the Sunwell was destroyed. Welcome to the future. A pity you're too late to stop it. No one can stop me now. And more than that, I think also games are aspect of play, and play is central to human experience. Any strong culture has a strong element of play. Any great artwork has a strong element of play. Even perhaps any great history has an element of play. And this brings to mind uh, the historian of medieval times and cultural theorist of the sort of early to mid-20th century, Johannes Huizinga. I think I might have mentioned in one of the episodes on the Crusades, he wrote a book called The Waning of the Middle Ages. And uh, just before the Second World War, he published a book called Homo Ludens. Uh, Ludens is like the Latin word for play, ludic, a study of the play element in culture. And there he asserted that human need to be understood not only as wise animals or homo sapiens, not only as makers and producers in an economy, so homo faber, perhaps not even only as, although this wasn't as dominant in Huizinga's time as has been over the last 30 or 40 years, not only as as commercial utility maximizers, as in Homo economicus, but you had to think about humans as Homo ludens, humans, the players. And he identified five characteristics of play that, if you like, I think also indicate the way in which play is both central to human experience and why games are not a weird addiction. Games are an aspect of humans playing. Games are part uh, that can be both a part of human experience that can be dreadful but can also be quite beautiful. So those these five reasons are, are that play is free and is in fact freedom. So by playing games, we actually enlarge our personal freedom and enrich our culture with that freedom. And I guess during the pandemic, perhaps that's why games exploded so much during the uh, public health restrictions during the pandemic. 
uh, we lost all other freedoms, so at, at least we were able to enjoy freedom through play. Play, this is the second point, play is not ordinary or real life. So by giving us a second life, games and their virtual reality bring into being the play of freedom and the creation of culture. They make any ordinary life richer. They are a kind of a double realm. Thirdly, he sort of says, play is distinct from ordinary life, both as to locality and duration. Playing games are not escapes so much as a form of separateness, even perhaps a form of, uh, not a sacred form of separateness, but a form of separateness to do this essential thing that humans do, which is play. Play, he says, creates order and is indeed, is indeed order. And in order, you find the beautiful. So games have rules and you don't just go into World of Warcraft and do any old thing. You, you know, you try to play your class well and that this creates a form of order, a kind of beauty, a kind of aesthetic purpose. And then finally, Play is connected with no material interest and no profit can be gained gained from it. There are really no gatekeepers to play, only different orders of the game. And one of the corrosive things in a game like World of Warcraft over the last couple of years has been the growing sense that, you know, you could sort of play to win, uh, a sense that, you know, if you just have, if you just put money into the game, then you will be rewarded rather than play according to the beautiful rules, the rules of order that are within the game. So Husinger says, play is a uniquely adaptive act, not subordinate to some other adaptive act, but a, with a special function of its own in human experience. It's a fascinating book, Homo uh, Ludens, and if I had a bit more time, I might go into it in a little bit more depth, but I'm going to try to be serious about keeping the podcasts under an hour. But I guess this whole theme, play games are not serious. Well, yes, that's but they're not serious in the sense of they're separated from ordinary. They have their own place. But within the game, you have to approach them seriously and you can experience quite deep cathartic experiences within those games. Games are not trivial. Games are part of this form of human activity, play, which you can see in Homo Ludens, Huizinger traces it in all sorts of activities, including warfare, uh, noting he was writing on the cusp of World War II. Ah, don't grieve. You'll soon join your loved ones. I grieve for you. You've made life your enemy. And that is a war you'll never win. You can kill us. But you cannot kill hope. The final little segment I want to talk about is how there is something perhaps unique to games and gaming, I think, that makes it a powerful experience. And in a way, it taps to a theme about high culture and low culture, highbrow culture and lowbrow culture, but also to that comment I made earlier about the contrast with the history of sport, how sport sort of evolved in its history to be very codified and elite-driven and competition-oriented and that kind of stuff being... You know, lots of people play sport, but the organised sport is very, very professionalised and, you know, for the best players and for the spectators rather than for oriented, I guess, to more broader participation. 
Uh, and in the same, in many ways, same same deal with high culture, uh, at least until recent times. But I think one of the things about computer games is, as uh, one of the companies says, it's for the players. There are not really the same kind of gatekeepers in games, perhaps, as there are those other examples of sport and, I guess, high culture. There's always a hierarchy of talent. Uh, there's always, you know, the elitist jerks who want to sort of say, you know, learn to play to anyone who can't uh, maximise their DPS in a raid. But games with such a large player base and such diversity of ways of playing also provide people the chance to just find their own path within the game. And I think this is part of the secret for the growing success and the growing participation in and the growth and the greater cultural significance of gaming in the last, I don't know, 20, 20 years or so, because the the cultural range of games has increased enormously. The culture, the player base of games has cre- increased enormously. And although they're commercialized and all that sort of thing and constrained by what developers do and etc etc they have a way of breaking down those those constraints and those hierarchies like you know people will create mods for games people will find within a game like world of warcraft like you can pursue a particular path like become the best raider and all that sort of thing but you also can just decide to go around and collect flowers and tune out to the music and <laughs> I don't know uh, identify your own weird little challenge like people would do Iron Man challenges where they they play with no good gear and try to survive and things like that so there's a, a sense in which games create this play world without gatekeepers this play world without hierarchy and this play world that is incredibly pluralistic uh, and with low barriers of entry which i think is terribly attractive and in some ways you know i think it's some of the same uh, dynamics seem to be occurring in i guess the the digital media world today like the hierarchical gatekeeper sort of world of news media is is collapsing on itself and losing its authority and burning its credibility and ordinary people making podcasts or video youtube channels and all that sort of stuff that uh, people are coming to rely upon much more than that much more than uh though that those sort of legacy institutions so in some ways i think gaming is fascinating not just for the world of gaming but for i guess the the way it's actually some of the social behavior i guess that you see within gaming spilling out into the broader culture father is it over that's my little uh episode on gaming in history and culture we began with uh, Isaac sort of posing the question and, and talking about his own experience of the significance of of gaming uh, in as a his as a way of um, being curious about history and culture. Talked about how games are indeed a window to history and culture, or offer windows to history and culture. How gaming has its own history, which is intertwined with my own personal biography how gaming is a form of art and of culture it it adds something to the world of symbols and meaning and uh, story and it is part of play and play is central to the human experience and especially as you know we enter it seems world war three it is an important and not to be demeaned part of human experience. And that games are for the players. 
and that is perhaps one of their interesting dimensions today, that they become a simple low barrier of entryway in which people can form and shape their own cultural experience as active participants rather than just as spectators or always going to be in the bottom 90% of the hierarchy. They can be champions in their own lives and explore their own open worlds in whatever way they wish. Okay, so next week I am going to speak about the second question that Isaac sort of posed to me, assuming there was a broad question there about gaming and history. And that question is about dragons and dragon slayers and some of their significance in history and culture. So I hope to be producing that episode in about two weeks. And in the meantime, I'll also be producing a couple of episodes of my new little series, Geopolitics Upside Down. If you're not interested in the whole geopolitics upside down thing, that's okay. You don't have to listen to it. I may spin it off as a separate uh, podcast. I'll just see how I go with organising things. But do look out for that. Do share the podcast with your friends and help build the audience for the Burning Archive. Share it on social media if you like. I do hope you have enjoyed this show. It was a bit of a hoot tonight. And I will see you next time. And do remember in the meantime, what thou lovest well will not be